We hear a lot about returning to normal these days, especially in response to COVID. But to me, the term normal has become a marginally meaningless cliche. So I was intensely intrigued when I came across a blog post by Sugata Mitra in which he comments on a legitimate concept of normal for these times, especially in direct relationship to the education of our children, of our students. If you've been listening to this, the Big Picture Social Emotional Learning Podcast, for a while, you appreciate that the name for this podcast is No Casual Accident, because this podcast is all about providing a big picture, wide-angle lens on social emotional learning. And my approach to nurturing kids' social and emotional development is very much in line with Sugata's highly regarded work in proving that it's better to not teach learners what they can learn by themselves based on asking them the right kinds of questions and asking those questions with an attitude and teacher-student relationship that fires up kids' natural curiosity, natural intelligence, natural creativity, and their natural collaborative problem-solving skills. I first became aware of Professor Sugata Mitra when my, many, many years ago I watched a TED Talk he gave, which resulted in him receiving a TED Prize of $1 million for his paradigm-shifting approach to education, which works with the natural ability of learners to come together, either in person or virtually, and learn via communication and collaboration that comes so naturally to them. Sukata retired as Professor of Educational Technology at the School of Education, Communication, and Language Sciences at Newcastle University in the United Kingdom, and he retired uh, in 2019. It was an incredible honor to share conversation with him. So I'm more than happy to welcome you to this Episode 90 of the Big Picture Social Emotional Learning Podcast. My name is Nini White. I am your host and so grateful to be sharing this conversation and this learning with you. I'm going to shift gears here for a couple of minutes to share something with you that's been on my mind for a while. See what you think. Most teachers have the idea that if they correct children's problem-causing behaviors often enough, the children's behaviors will eventually improve. But those constant corrections could actually be counterproductive, backfiring on you. I get it. I do. I've been there. We all have. Kids are brand new little people and they need to learn from us. So it's easy to believe that we just need to keep repeating what we know they need to learn so they can be happy and make friends and have better lives. But if that is actually the best and only way to improve kids' problem-causing behaviors, then all kids who were constantly corrected would turn out to be wonderfully behaved kids. (laughs) The thing is, we all know that's not how it is. In fact, continually correcting kids' problem-causing behaviors, as we all have seen, often has the exact opposite effect from our good intentions, with causing some rebellion and unhappy resistance and all that awful stuff. 
Would you like to know how you can actually get kids' problem-causing behaviors to change? Really change? Permanently change? You get groups of kids thinking together to preemptively, objectively, and impersonally analyze problem-causing behaviors with which they're all familiar. And then you ask them a series of well-thought-out questions that draw upon their own creative problem-solving instincts, combined with their natural desire to show how much they know in the company of their peers when they're sure of their answers, combined with, you'll be glad to know, all the corrective guidance they've received from you and their families. Want to know a few of the many advantages to this approach? Okay, number one, they're giving voice together to their own solutions. Number two, they're hearing each other come up with with their own solutions. Number three, they're claiming ownership within the group to their own solutions, which results in them actually correcting each other's problem-causing behaviors in ways that they tend to respond to with much less resistance than to our corrections when those real problem uh, situations arise. Just for a moment, can you think back to when you were a kid? From a kid's point of view, how much sense does this make to you? How much did you like always being told what to do? How much did you like making up your own rules for all the things you did with other kids? Well, that's what can be done with this new approach to correct problem-causing behaviors. Is there a learning curve? Sure, but it's not a steep learning curve when you remember how you felt when you were a kid, always being told what to do. You just have to ask yourself, does it really make any sense to continually correct children's problem-causing behaviors and keep ending up with the same resistance and frustration and rebellion? Or does it make more sense to try a different way of relating to kids that draws upon their own natural problem-solving instincts so that both you and they can enjoy, enjoy more of your time together because you have learned how to guide them into engaging with the best of what's already inside them, ready and waiting to be exercised for everyone's happiness and well-being. So, if you'd like to learn more about this way of approaching kids' problem-causing behaviors, please join us on the Big Picture Social Emotional Learning Podcast Facebook group, where you can connect with me and with other teachers to learn some of the brain science behind why this approach works so well, and to learn about a variety of kids who respond to to this approach, and to learn a whole lot more. Okay, see you in the Facebook group, hopefully. Sagatra Mitra, what an honor. I mean, I didn't even know that you would accept my invitation and I am so honored and thank you because I am a big, I have been a big fan of yours for years, ever since I saw your TED talk. So thank you. Thank you for joining me in conversation here. Well, thanks. I mean, I, I, I was actually quite intrigued by, uh, by your uh, description of the, of the podcast and the fact that you like a conversation and you don't actually want me to deliver a lecture. 
So, <laughs> and uh, and then, well, to be very honest, the fact that you're on the west coast of the U.S., I like the people there. Yes, yes. Um, there's a lot of fresh thinking and um, kind of bravery to try new things. I think, and at yeah. least be open to new concepts. Yeah. And that's well, I mean, you know, the the, the west coast. Uh, people of the US, uh, well, like anywhere else in the US as well, they, you know, they're, so, they're different from each other. Yeah. You know, the, 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 when you come from outside the country, like when the first time I sort of went to uh, United States, uh, so, you know, decades ago, I would, uh, everything looked uh, similar everywhere. And I said, gosh, every place looks similar. I mean, there, there it is. There's the McDonald's, there's this, there's that. I mean, what's this? Because, you know, in India, it's, if you go from one city to another, it can be very dramatically different, you know, yes. different languages, different colors, different things. Then years passed. And then I said to myself, gosh, I got it wrong. It's it's just the outer stuff which looks familiar all the time because of social norms or systems, as of, you know, chain stores or whatever it is. And the language is and, and the language, yeah. yeah. But the but the people are very very different. Very the way, very. The way they they think, the way they talk, and and the know. values, absolutely, yes. But you of know, course, uh, go ahead. No, I said it, it's. Uh, I, I wish the U.S. would actually, you know describe this a little bit more to to people outside of the country that the diversity of the united states instead yeah. of focusing only on the marketing bit which is the unity of you know every country yeah. says the unity of this country yeah, yeah. the thing is it's it's in the diversity that that the real fun lies i mean i live in this little island you know the united kingdom and when i came there i said gosh in in, in american terminology i'd say well this is like uh, you know the, the the length of the country is like from New York to uh, Washington or something like that, and you know it, it's really tiny. And then as the years went by, gosh, what fantastic diversity within that tiny thing! Within yes. five miles, you can't understand the language yes. anymore. Yes. <laughs> you know? yes. So it, it's uh, you know. Which which makes me realize. You know what? I just realized I don't have my ear things in, so I'm just going to yes, put. Yes, please. Um, which makes me also think about, you know, that's that's what we see. And then you're talking about going to a different level of appreciation. And then you sink down to another level. And then there's that unity again, that unity of inclinations and desires and hopes and all of that. And, and abilities and adaptabilities. And so it's just so interesting what what's already been brought out in this conversation. I really appreciate that. I, I knew that I would be, my expectations would be exceeded. And thank you. Oh, come on. <laughs> let's, not, let's not raise the expectations of, of our okay. Future, okay. future audience. Okay. <laughs> okay. I yes. am a retired professor. Yes. I can be very boring if I want to, uh, but I won't be. <laughs> I don't. Nope. That's not been any of my experience with what I've watched you many times on YouTube and TED talk and everything. So, all right. all right. So I recently read a blog post of yours where you were described, you know, commenting on the fact that people are talking about getting back to normal 
and it seemed like you had a pretty strong reaction to that concept of normal. And I, I would love to hear you kind of share your thoughts again from that blog post because it was, it was like a, you know, wake up call. Yeah. I liked it. Yeah. Well, um, I I was thinking about that for a long time, and uh, I finally decided to write it. The the thought actually came into my mind quite uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, really, uh, when people used to constantly say, when we go back to normal. So I kept hearing that, and I used to believe that myself, as, of course, when we go back to normal, uh, which means what? Which means, oh, I, I can you know, go out and take a bus and go somewhere. Uh, right now I have to think, should I do it or should I not? Do I need to wear a mask? Um, so going back to normal means I should be able to do that. Mm-hmm. But then I thought a little voice in my head said, but uh, w- what about the time when buses were not normal? Mm-hmm. And uh, as it happens, I <laughs> had been reading a historical book about Calcutta in India, where I was born. Um, uh, Calcutta is the city uh, which the British founded. It was at, in its peak in the uh, early 20th century, 1910 or so. It was called the second city of the empire. Okay, it was, wow. uh, there was a big British hub over there and so on. And Ooh. so they brought all their inventions there. Okay, every Ooh. single one of them, it would appear in London and within six months, it would appear in Calcutta. Ah. For example, the bus. Uh-huh. So I sort of threw my mind back to that, to that time in Calcutta. And so there must have been a time when people would get into a bus. I feel very scared because it's you know moving too fast and shaking and, and then saying to, to themselves, when things go back to normal, I'll get off this thing and walk. <laughs> so, so that's yeah. what I mean by yeah, yeah. What, what normal? Right. What, right. what normal? How long does it take before something becomes normal? You yeah. and I are talking on Zoom, yeah. and this is not normal. Right. We need or the long it? view. Yeah. Or, or is it? Or, or is it that another five years later, mm-hmm. this will be normal? Mm-hmm. And if I were to say, oh, by the way, Nini, I, I really want to see you. I'm going to uh, take a flight to London, wait six hours, uh, take a 10-hour flight uh, to, to San Francisco, and then take a very expensive taxi ride, and I will arrive and we will meet. And what if five years from now you might uh, at that point say, but that's not normal at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so... We uh, so firstly, when things go back to normal, doesn't mean anything, right? Right. right. Both parts of the sentence going back, right? You can't go back in time, right? I mean, everybody knows that, right? So, so you can't go back. And normal, uh, do we have a definition for, for normal? Right. And I thought, well, it could be a lot of things. It could be what everybody does. It could be what everybody did, but could it also be what everybody will do? (laughs) (laughs) Can that be normal? (laughs) So that's when I wrote the article. And normal, yeah. I mean, it just seems like 
you know, there's a resistance to progress. I mean, that's basically kind of what you're saying, right? There's just a resistance to, a bit, to uh, the fact that life moves forward. Yes. It, it is unstoppable. It keeps moving forward. It, it absolutely that uh, we we necessarily move forward. That's the nature of time. Mm. And uh, what if what if whatever happens in time is normal for that time and if, relatively beneficial as well life supporting whichever whichever way whichever way it yeah. is but if we, if you're moving with the time and the time says that the world is warmer than it used to be who are we to say that is not normal <laughs> i'm not saying whether it's good or bad <laughs> I'm saying we have to be very careful with the word normal. Mm -hmm. Yes, more conscious and more precise and more, uh, yeah, maybe our expectations and yeah, definitions and, and yeah. And then, you know, when you apply it to human beings, there, there is an awful word. There's an awful word, which is abnormal. Uh, oh, so-and-so is abnormal. It's so <laughs> insulting. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. I mean, who's, uh, who, who tells you you're normal and he's not? I know, I know. I mean, one conclusion that I've been coming to with different members of my family is he's crazy, she's crazy, I'm crazy, we're all crazy. You know? yeah, <laughs> like, that kind of and thing. we fit this craziness together. But, um... yeah. but you, you know, I mean, just to, 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 to sort of uh, take you into a bit of math, the word normal actually does have a mathematical meaning in statistics. It's, uh, you know, if you have a bell-shaped curve like this, of, uh -huh, you know, uh -huh. the, the, the stuff that happens most frequently, if you draw a vertical line there, that's called the normal. Right. Okay, it passes through the average, you know. So that gives us an idea of where this word came from. It's, mm. it, it's the average, it's the most frequently occurring Okay. Uh, things which makes up the normal Good. you know and uh, in geometry <laughs> this is just for fun in Good. geometry a normal is described as a perpendicular you know a straight line up uh -huh. you know here's the curve of all the things that can happen some things happen a lot some things happen in, yeah. uh, more than a lot some things happen less than a lot and right in the middle is the normal perpendicular so i tried this on my friends you know people who say in the new normal and i said just uh, try saying to yourself in the new perpendicular <laughs> and you know my friends are all over 60 many of them the male friends uh -huh. and they said what are you trying to imply yeah <laughs> you know, the new perpendicular <laughs> yes <laughs> anyway that's just a joke no that's <laughs> really good because we have to just get fresh eyes to look at stuff that we're most familiar with if we don't sort of scrub our you know perceptive capacity to see things from fresh uh viewpoint then we're just going to just keep using the same standards that are no longer relevant that that is the point that is the point. And, and there are many questions that can be asked. Uh, I've asked as many as I can. When I say as I can, it means as many as society would allow me. 
you know there are questions which society allows you to ask and then they would say that's a lovely different point of view mm-hmm. we must pay attention to it mm-hmm. but there are also other questions which society doesn't allow you to ask because uh, i don't know i don't know because you need to figure this out okay mm-hmm. i'm going to give you an example mm-hmm. uh, just verging on the risque okay during the pandemic everybody were wore masks and mm-hmm. you know they continue to do every government says we advise that you wear mask all the mm-hmm. time um 5 year olds today um have there would be several who have very rarely seen somebody a grown up person without a mask right okay i know of a school teacher um in california who said you know i went up to the water cooler to get myself a glass of water and to drink it i had to you know yeah take off my mask right suddenly found a whole lot of little fellows staring up at me ah, <laughs> and well why do i say this okay we just made a certain part of our face uh-huh. private private parts. private parts oh my gosh okay so so this whole idea of private parts mm. is it normal mm. <laughs> is it so easy to change mm. you know who decided Mm. Is there anything like that in the animal kingdom? Mm. It doesn't seem to be. They or don't seem to think that. Different cultures, yeah. <laughs> yeah, or not even yeah. different cultures. So, so, so anyhow, so okay. so uh, you know, again, what is normal? What is abnormal? What questions can you ask, which are within the norm, and therefore can be asked? Mm. And which questions, even though they are very important and interesting, cannot be asked? because they're not within the norm. Mm-hmm. Ah, good. Definitely got me thinking. I like this stretching my uh that's why I call this the big picture social emotional learning podcast because I want it to be big picture and to stretch people's minds and and just you know and have it still be relevant but just look at things through fresh perspective and deep and really thinking. Um I want to take this thought of yours about normal and relate it to kids school experience now. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. I know uh, I mean what is that school experience? What does it do for children? Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess that's the kind of thing you you have in mind. Um Yes because well I read this great thing that you you we really should not be teaching kids something that they can learn on their own you know I yes. love that Oh I'm I'm glad you like that uh, but I I need to to emphasize one point okay mm-hmm. in what you just said Okay we should not be teaching children what they can learn by themselves Right That plural at the end is very important ah. right i agree okay. with that 100% as well okay on, on their own um i'm not so sure yes okay. of course there are things we can learn on our own but by themselves i have experimental data which says that groups of unsupervised children yes given the internet can learn just about anything by themselves yes yes so by themselves for your viewers yes yes yes. Again, yes 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 
I hundred percent agree. Yes. Okay. So so anyway, the, the school experience uh, obviously. Uh, what is that experience in order to, 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 to think about that? Let's just think for a moment um, if that experience was not there. So imagine this world where you have parents, you have children, and the children don't go anywhere mm-hmm. except with their parents. Mm-hmm. I suppose there must have been a time in the world many thousands of years ago when the world was like that. Mm-hmm. For the first 10 years, maybe first 18 years, you were with your parents, you did, you went where they went, and you did what they asked you to do or whatever. Um, then I suppose somebody invented playgrounds, and then you could be with, with other children, with friends, and so on. And then came the whole idea of school. School, by the way, is more than 5,000 years old. So it's, uh, you know, it's... It's something that humanity realized very early on, Mm -hmm. that you have to take young people, you have to put them together, and you have to, well, and you have to, you have two choices. Choice one, you have to teach them things. Option two, you have to enable them to Mm. learn things. Mm. Okay. Uh, for two and a half thousand years ago, uh, these two camps existed. Uh-huh. Plato's camp, uh-huh. we have to teach you. Okay, Socrates's camp, but I can't teach what I don't know. I can only ask. Okay, so we uh-huh. always had that. Yeah. Um, I landed myself into that, you know, because of of a of a tiny. Well, very simple, not tiny, but very simple experiment called the hole in the wall. Yes. Where children were just, you know, learning things by themselves. And uh, people would ask me, well, who, who, who is teaching them? And the answer was, it can only be each other because there isn't anybody else. Right, right. That's what I used to say in those days as well, to say, mm-hmm. well, they're obviously teaching each other. Until I realized that maybe even that sentence is biased. Uh-huh. What if there is no teaching involved? There is learning happening mm. without teaching. Mm. What if? And discovery. I asked myself that. Discovery. I, yeah, whatever. Okay, okay. Um, from somewhere some way and and so on and so forth, Um, I started looking at the natural world. One of the most common examples, uh, how does a mother bird teach a baby bird to fly? Okay, does she say, open your primer at page one, (laughs) spread your wing like this, then flap (laughs) them like that. (laughs) She doesn't seem to do all of that. She does something very simple. She pushes the chick off the nest. Okay. And the chick flies. Mm-hmm. Um, is that magic? No, it can't be. There must be a program called How to Fly inside the chick's brain, which gets activated when the chick is thrown off the nest. It was already there. Right. It came from the inside. Yes. It, it wasn't put in from the outside. 
As soon as you get up to that point, I can then ask you, how many things are there like that, right. which are already inside? Yes. And all you have to do is figure out how to let them come out. Right. Right. Oh my God, I love this. So is it only with birds and flying and fish and swimming and right. babies and breathing and crying? Or is it to do with other stuff as well? Yeah. That's all locked up inside there. Mm. And, you know, you can call it by any name but we do know that it gets sparked off as i saw in the hole in the wall it gets sparked off by the presence of others and the presence of an unknown okay yeah. uh, a, a few people may remember a film called 2001 a space odyssey uh -huh. a science fiction film uh, originally written by sir arthur c clark whom i've met before mm. he died and mm. <laughs> and then made into a film by Stanley Kubrick, mm -hmm. a famous film. Mm -hmm. Anyway, the, the story is very simple. Um, let me make it up. Let's imagine that the room you're sitting in, um, next to you, there's a little sofa over there. And uh, as you're talking, you, you, your eyes move to that sofa, and you notice that there is a black-colored object, rectangle, sitting there. And you know your own residence, so. So uh, I, I don't have that. I, I don't have any black colored thing, <laughs> the, the, the rectangle over there. I don't know. So then, uh, but you're in the middle of a podcast. So you continue with the professor. My next question is, and so on. But at the back of your mind is, who the hell put that? Where did that come from? You know, you can't take it anymore after a while. So after a while, say, Sugata, just, just give me a second, will you? And you, and you turn, <laughs> and you turn to the black rectangle. And you touch it. Nothing happens. It's smooth. It's black. You try to push it. It doesn't move. You said, this is it fixed to the ground or what? Push it a little bit harder. Then you turn back to your podcast and say, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. I got distracted. You know, there's this thing over there on my sofa. But anyway, let us continue to talk about, you know, what is normal. And, yeah. <laughs> and, and so on. This was more or less the story of 2001. What happened was, mm. after the after you got up, you called the cops. You said, there's something very strange sitting on my sofa. The cops came. Said, we can't figure it out and we can't budge it. So they called the university. The people came and they did studies and they couldn't find anything. I mean, they, it was just a black rectangle, but it just wouldn't move. And then Clark takes off, you know, in his sci-fi and says, within a year, the entire world is only interested in one thing. Mm -hmm. What is that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. I believe the hole in the wall back in 1999 mm. was like that for the children. Mm. What is this? Because remember, they had never seen a computer before. They had right. not heard of the internet. Right. And in their effort to solve that problem, they learned everything. Okay. Much as we would do with that black monolith of right. 2001. Right. So, so, so what do you need? You need a question. Yes. It has to be an, a question that occupies your mind continuously, which you think about in your sleep all the time or whatever. Mm. And you need other people 
you can't solve it on your own. Right. You've got to have a few friends. So what do you think that is? That your friend says, well, I know, I, I know a professor of physics in UCLA. Let's call him. And then, and then he calls his friend. And it goes on like, we need yes. each other. Yes. Yes. So the big question and groups. Yes. In England, I brought that method into the classrooms of elementary schools, primary schools, where I live in this city called Gateshead. It's a small city. Uh, it's, uh, you know, there, there's a larger city called Newcastle upon Tyne, mm -hmm. uh, you know, big coal mining city. You might remember the, uh, the phrase in English, bringing coal to Newcastle, you know, as, as something that you don't do. So anyway, so, so there's Newcastle. It's sitting on the River Tyne. Across the River Tyne is another city. It's called Gateshead. Okay. It's in Gateshead that I brought this method of a big question and groups of children into the classroom. And 2001 happened in front of my eyes, except that it, it happened in 2007 or something like that. But the same thing, this incredible collective social effort yeah. to figure it out. Yes, yes. It went to the extent where to the principal of that school, I once said, you know, on, uh, at the entrance to your school, if you had an arch, then instead of writing some Greek or Latin motto on it, I think we should write in English, figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> Which they will. Of course they will. I mean, that's, that's play. That's play and fun for that's, kids. It's that just... is. And... And add to that the internet, right? You know, right, which is right. uh, which is the other the, the other thing which uh, bothers me about uh, normal, mm -hmm. because if you remember our little statistical definition of the thing that everybody does is mm -hmm. called normal. Mm -hmm. Okay, everybody eats uh, turkey at Thanksgiving; mm -hmm. it's normal. Mm -hmm. uh, if you said this Thanksgiving, I'm going to eat frog's legs. Uh, that would not be considered normal, <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> so, 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 you know, so, so normal is what lots of people do. So, so then, how do we define normal? So we need to figure it out. Uh, we need to figure out what everybody is thinking about, what everybody is doing. How do we do that? In a democracy, we ask them all to vote. It's a very kludgy system. You have to take little pieces of paper, put it into ballot boxes, to count the ballot boxes, and then so on. And it's a fraud. Uh, it's fraught with fraud, mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, mm -hmm. right? Because it's so easy to change the ballot box or to, mm -hmm. to, to miscount the votes and all. Of, I mean, you guys know this very well. <laughs> all, all the hoo-ha, how, how terrible the election system can be. Same with any other big democracy. India, we have the same problem. So... Uh, so the method that we use to figure out what everybody thinks may not be quite accurate, may not be mm -hmm. quite good. Mm -hmm. What other methods are there? Well, before democracy, there used to be monarchy, okay? A mm -hmm. king or a queen. Mm -hmm. And she knew the pulse of the people. And therefore, we did anything that she asked us because, you know, she knows the pulse of the people. She knows uh -huh. what's normal. Uh -huh. And even before that, <laughs> there was another way, which is when, when we were really at our wits and how do, how do I know what's normal? What am I supposed to do? 
then one day a supernatural being would mutter into the ears of some unsuccess unsuspecting bloke somewhere on the mountain and say, I'll tell you 10 rules yes. okay, of the things that you must do. Yes. And, the guy, and the guy says, oh, sorry, sir, I've forgotten me. I forgot my pad and pencil. And okay, okay, okay I'll get a piece of rock. I'll, I'll scratch it out on the rock and, and I'll carry it back. And that was normal. Yes. Yes. Billions of people would follow. Yes. That. Yes. I'm not making fun of any of this. I'm just saying this is a, this is humanity's attempt to find yes. out what most people like or what right. most people should be doing. Okay. Right. All that is fine until we actually had a supernatural, as in a non-human being, if you want to call it a being which stares out of a screen with a white bar that says, ask anything. And we say, oh, that? Oh, come on. It, it, it's full of nonsense. It's full of rubbish. This, that, the other thing. But what happened to us? A love for supernatural voices. <laughs> We've got it. You've got it sitting in front of you. All you need to do is minimize my screen and you'll have your little bar which says, ask anything. Right, right. We are in denial. Mm. So, so what I did back in India, back in England in 2006 was to ask children a question when they said, I wish I knew the answer. I would say, ask anything yeah. to that thing, not to me. Yeah. And they would, and they would come back and they would say, Sugata, that was so simple. We just figured it out. Yeah. That's all. Okay. So what happened? It shifted the normal. Mm -hmm. The result, everybody hated it. Everybody said Isn't that, that is cheating. Isn't that that is cheating. You know? Have you thought, Nini, that every time you look up anything on Google, you're I'm cheating? Che I'm cheating. I'm a cheater. <laughs> yes, you're a cheater. <laughs> That's it. Um, so, 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 you know, going back to normal, yeah. And, and this whole thing about, I mean, this podcast is about social emotional learning. And I think everything that you're saying really big picture does relate to the social and emotional development, because that stuff is very, very deep. It, it's, it's threads are very deep within us that come out and get expressed in different ways. But, but you've talked about, you know, this collaborative element that is, is essential for for gaining knowledge that can go for that they can go forward with that's 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 kind of that's justified that's validated that's that is deeper and richer and more widely embracing so i do you have insights uh, or perspective about the social emotional side of this approach that you're talking about this ask anything themselves learning themselves a lot. A yeah, lot. I'm sure. Yes, you know, I'd love the, to hear the, that. Well, the, the, the main uh, thing that can go wrong with the search engine ask anything kind of world is if a single individual, particularly if a single child, were to do the searching. Yes. And you know, and I know, and everybody knows that you can get really badly off, taken off into a wrong direction. 
Yes. Because of websites which are not true, because of powerful marketing, because of yes. advertising, because of all yes. sorts of reasons. Yes. And that's the reason why parents get so scared about you know, children on the internet, you know, and what will the internet do to them and so on. Mm. Except that they always think of it as one child mm. on the internet. Mm -hmm. What I have seen over more than uh, 22 years now is that when it's a group, particularly a heterogeneous group, boys and girls mm -hmm. and different ages, mm -hmm. 8 mm -hmm. to 15 maybe, mm -hmm. if you have that kind of group and then they ask a question, you hear little voices which say, that's rubbish. Uh, let's look up another website. Let's find out if, uh, as a child in England once explained it to me, if we find two websites which say different things, uh -huh. then the best thing to do is to look for a third one and see which one it supports. And then to look for a fourth one and to see <laughs> if the majority of the websites are supporting this one. And that's probably true. And I said, God, this guy, this, this guy has got the soul of democracy. Right. <laughs> you know? Oh, beautiful. <laughs> so beautiful. so that, that's, that's the thing. So, so you need the group. Right. Okay, you, you need right. the group to tell you you're, you're going wrong or whatever. Uh, then the fear of the internet uh, that parents have, you know, that they will run into bad websites. Parents and, and are, teachers. Yeah, well, yeah and, and teachers. Yeah, yeah, well, both parents and teachers. Yeah. You know, bad websites, yeah. uh, which is again absolutely true. Yes. Except I know an antidote, very simple one. If the screen is big, and if it's in a publicly visible space, nothing ever goes wrong. You can try it. Take the worst teenagers you can get in wherever you are. Give them a big screen, okay? Five feet diagonal screen. Huh. Okay? Put it facing a shopping mall where their mothers and aunts and everybody's walking back and forth and people driving and, you know, workmen working and, uh -huh. and say, go ahead, guys, do, do your best, do your worst uh -huh. <laughs> you know, uh -huh. and see what happens. Okay. It's, I'm, I'm overstating it, but the point is that publicly yeah. visible screens are safe. Uh -huh. This is the reason why the television in your living room is never misused. Mm. because everybody can see what's going on right? mm. you're walking in and out of your kitchen you're going to say what the hell is going on over there and shut that off or oh, whatever <laughs> uh, we can't do that with the internet because the devices are tiny mm. it is very dangerous to have a single child with a tiny single device mm. isolated into a space in order to provide privacy for adults mm. I want my privacy so you little girl take your phone and go off over there mm. you're asking for trouble mm. big trouble mm -hmm. as opposed to and this is also happening fortunately it's happening mm. as opposed to take a big screen in the living room mm. and say this is a smart TV I can mm -hmm. get internet on it let's go on the internet and see mm. and let the children do the searching let the children solve the problems right there mm. and just watch as you tell your child I couldn't have guessed that how did you do that so quickly mm. just watch his face Okay, mm -hmm. it's the best emotional development you can have in a little mm. boy or a little girl mm. to be told that in the world that she is inheriting Mm -hmm. she will be the queen mm -hmm. 
Mm. Yes, that that self-sufficiency, that self-respect, that self-motivation, that connecting yes. with others. Yeah. You know, I sort of uh, began to suspect that by observing uh, children interacting with their grandparents. Okay, it was, uh, it is actually quite common to have a, a grandmother or a grandfather say, how did this background change on my phone? Yes. Okay. Yes. And then you have this 10 year old on the side, and say, you know, Roger, can, can you just, can you just see what, what's going on? And Roger comes along there and fixes it. Yeah. And he said, oh my goodness, how did you do that? And Roger says, come on, granny. I mean, you, you don't even, you don't even know that. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. So uh, it, it is uh, emotionally the best thing you can do to a child. Yes. When you can make the side child say something like, you know, you don't even know that. Yeah. <laughs> when you, when the child can teach you. Yeah. When the child can teach you. And, or the child can, is, is invited to teach the teacher in the classroom. Yes. That is uh, sort of the, the. The children. The children are invited. Yeah. The children. That is where my work actually headed eventually yes. in, in the schools of England first okay. and then into schools everywhere. By the way, there are you know, tens of thousands of teachers in the United States who use this method uh, of asking a question and then having children research the answer, mm. except that they have now understood that that question can be a question to, to which they themselves don't know the answer. Yes. And that Much children do yeah. better if yeah. you tell them, you know, I don't know the answer. And I really would like to know. Yes. Okay. So what does that mean? It means that you, the teacher, can teach a subject that you don't know. Yes. I love that. I love it too. I really love it too. Because then it's, then it's, you're all together. And that's, you know, that, that sense of togetherness and, and forging forward to, gain knowledge to learn how to fly on that subject you know yes. it's just yes. it's just liberating it's it's elevating it's expansive you know it's it's it makes life feel alive you know i Absol I, I mean Absolutely. it's what life is about it's an expanding universe and increasingly when you look at uh, school curricula um i find that a lot of it still lies, uh, relies on knowledge from the past. Exactly. In fact, in fact, come to think of it, all of it does. Yeah. Think, think of your school. <clears throat> Was there ever a class where they said, let's look at what's going to happen to art in the future? It never did. They always yeah. said art in the past. Well, there were right. these artists and there were these right. artists and before them, there were these artists and so on. Same in science, same everywhere. We take these children and for about the first uh, 17 years of their lives, we try to tell them all about the past yes. in the hope that this will help them to negotiate the future. Uh -huh. All this is fine as long as there was a continuity between the past and the future. Mm -hmm. exactly. I think that continuity broke yes. somewhere in the latter bits of the 20th century mm. when the future started coming in too fast 
too fast for the continuity to remain so that you could predict, you know. Alvin Toffler called it a uh, future shock, if you remember. Exactly, yes, yes. Yeah. And, and teaching is a, it takes every ounce of your energy and your creativity and you're trying to have a life too and then you have to come back and prepare for school and all that, you know, so it's almost like, but so that makes me think about, you know, teachers' mindsets about what you're, suggesting and do you think or have you observed that it's more work for teachers or less work of teachers to to take this approach of asking questions that maybe they don't even know the answers well uh it depends on the system you see um teachers have a lot of work to do in the existing system mm -hmm. you know they they frequently even complain about the the, the number of things that they have to bring home all the time, you know, uh, test, answer books and correct mm -hmm. them and take them back and, mm -hmm. and grade assignments and do this, that, the other mm -hmm. thing. So, so they have a lot of work, which was one of the reasons why I had initially found it difficult to, to put forward this method because the teachers would say, for example, Indian teachers would say, I'd love to try it. I don't have the time and I don't have right. the energy right. to, to right. do that. I have the old system to carry with me. Right. So, uh, so that's on the one side. But if a teacher did actually cross over to the other side yes. and did actually uh, use that method, as a few of them did in England, mm -hmm. then they have a different story. What they say is, okay, you want to teach the children about something or the other, you make up a really good question. You ask them the question, let them research it. And at the end of an hour or maybe two sessions, you figure out how much of your teaching actually got done. In some cases, it may be only 20%. You know, they could only figure out 20%. So you know, okay, I've got to now teach the balance 80 or mm do something about the balance 80. Mm -hmm. In another case, you might have that 80% of what you were going to teach actually got done. Right. So now you have only 20% left. Plus you had all the, that, those other benefits of the kids working together, working, working together. And I'm, I'm not even counting that, but even on just the, the right. arithmetic on the balance sheet. Yes, yes, yes. You don't actually run out of time. You, you actually might end up gaining time because of the stuff that got done. But all this, but all this is held back by just one thing, standardized testing. Oh. You see, standardized testing, um, what does it mean? Right. And where does it come from? Right. Uh, you know, I, I teach you how to, how to fire a rifle. And I make you practice and practice and practice and practice. And then finally, I need to graduate you. So what do I do? I say, Nini, here's a rifle. There's the target. Shoot it. If you, get, if, if, you, if you hit the target eight times out of 10, you graduate. If you hit it only two times out of 10, you're back in school. You failed. Uh, I purposely took that example because that's the history from where it, this kind of testing came. Yeah where you wanted to build people for a good reason. You wanted to build people who would defend you. Mm. 
And those people had to be identical to each other. They need mm. to be able to do exactly the same things. Mm. How do you rely on them? Mm. They were needed. And an entire education system was built to produce such people. Mm. But now jump to the 21st century. Mm. Do we need identical people? It's not helping much, yeah. as we can see, the identical... You know, and, and uh, it, it's kind of uh, probably depressing to think, but have you noticed the nature of conflict, the nature of war itself exactly. has changed? And we division, don't have, like in my country, the division. Yeah, yeah, just, absolutely. Yeah. We, we no longer fight wars the way we used to. Right. You know, remember, the, 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 you know, a, a tank in the desert and this heroic commander with his, you know, men on the other side. And then there's the tank of the enemy on the other side and you shoot them down. And there's, there's so many films about it. But, but now you don't fight like that anymore. Right. You know, well, to give you another example, if, if you consider the enemy to be an organized force, and then you build up your own organized force using education yeah. to defend them and to attack them or whatever it is, this stuff works. Right. But what if, what if the enemy were, were to be malaria mosquitoes? Okay, they are, the, they are the enemy. Millions and millions of them. Okay. Who are you going to shoot at? Right. <laughs> Who's going to be the commander? What tank will attack them? What Who's going to come do? up with a solution? Who Who's has practice come up coming up with solutions? There is only one way. Yeah. Take young people. Yeah. Give them the question. Yeah. How do we beat the mosquito? Mm. When they say, do you have any ideas? You say, no, I don't. You figure it out. And then, maybe in 20 years' time, not even 20 years, maybe in 20 months' time, like we did with the COVID virus, yeah. they'll get it. Yeah. Were they using their military-style standardized testing to build vaccines the way vaccines have never been built before? Mm -hmm. They were not. Mm -hmm. They were breaking all the rules. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, And they were working together. I don't think the medical world has ever worked together like they did right. at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, right. exchanging data. And the internet stood between us and the virus. Right. Think about it that way. We beat the virus. I think we beat the virus and we beat it because the internet stood between us and the virus. Mm -hmm. I have a little book. It's called Virus Versus the Internet. Uh -huh. <laughs> So that's what the war was all about. That's the uh, new kind of war, uh, and it doesn't need standardized testing. Yeah, yeah. And and you recommend even conversations between students and teachers, and probably groups of students and teachers. And I, I mean, I want you to talk about that, but I just have to say, I just love and honor the respect that you have for children's minds and problem-solving abilities and what can be brought out of them with the proper approach. I, I love that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think just scratched the surface right now. Yeah. And, uh, and, and uh, for, for the teachers, uh, 
again, for whom I have, you know, a tremendous amount of respect, because in spite of their being held back by this classical, almost military kind of system, they still are fighting back. They're still trying new ways. Mm -hmm. We need to lift those shackles of them. And the way to do it would be to change the standardized testing. You know, changing the examination changes the whole system. And I have uh, sort of two one-liners, which are probably good towards the end of this show. The first one-liner is, um, allow the use of the internet during testing and examination. Yes. Okay. Which also means that allow conversation because on the internet, you don't only look up things, you can also chat with people and, mm-hmm. and so on. So mm-hmm. everything's allowed. Allow that, number one. Number two, for teachers, the message, I think, to me, is very clear. The, the, the teacher says to the learner, you go there. I'll come with you. love it. Uh, that see one of the reasons that I'm so passionate about this is because I was I was just like at the bottom of all of my classes when I was in school because <laughs> okay. I was starving to be treated like that and I had to discover it on my own and then I got to find out that there are people like you that that see it and can communicate it powerfully enough to reach the people that need to hear it so that's why my respect for you is to the sky and my gratitude. <laughs> so thank you so much. Yeah. Well, I'm, 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 I'm glad. I, I hope this will be of, of use to, 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 to viewers. Um, you know, so we, we're heading towards, uh, you know, this new world where uh, there will be, uh, where normal will be different. Yes. And we don't know what that normal is going, going to be. Uh, what we do know is that we need a generation that can figure out stuff that we don't know. Yeah, and they need practice from the earliest ages yes. with problem solving in groups. Absolutely. At the, at, with, at the guidance of teachers who have a trust in kids' intelligence, who can see that the kids can do it, even if it's scary in the beginning and a little bit of a bumpy road, do you want to talk about any of that before I let we have to say goodbye? <laughs> I mean, because yeah. trusting kids can be—that's quite a leap for some some people who. Well, it, it, you, know, you don't have to make an effort. You don't have to make an effort. At least I never had to make an effort because uh, that trust kind of comes from the inside. Yeah. Uh, what can I say? You have to be able to think like a nine-year-old. <laughs> Yes. Okay. Yeah. You have to. You have to because yes. otherwise, if you don't know your learner, then how? What, what are you going to do? Oh. Okay. So you have to know. So that's that's the only skill that you need to acquire. In my case, I may, maybe I'm underdeveloped because I never had to make that effort. <laughs> I, I, I still do think like, and the nine-year-olds can sense that. Yes. And I know that because yeah. uh, you know. When I was developing this method back in 2007 in Gateshead, uh, I used to go back and forth between India and England. 
And the first time I got the impression that I was making headway with the children is when there was a class and I said, I'm not going to come uh, for the next two or three months. And the children said, oh, where are you going? So I said, I'm going to India. And uh, it was nothing emotional. Yeah. But, but the children said, do you have to go? And to me, that was reward enough. Yeah. I, I love your point. I'm going to bring it back to that, the mind of a nine-year-old. I just love that. Because <laughs> we have to be able to, to not grow up entirely. Or that isn't quite it. I love how you said it. That just that kid in us can can stay alive or stay vital. Yeah, yeah. We have I guess. to be able to relate to them in that way, and still get our PhDs and buy our houses. And you can do all of that. You can do all yeah. of that. PhDs is very much a nine-year-old kind of activity. You know, I have a I have a student of mine who's just entered into a, a, a PhD in pure mathematics. Oh. And, and his mother was saying, you know, Harry's joined a pure mathematics PhD. And I said, what's this PhD on? And she said, well, he explained it to me, but I didn't understand anything. So I said, uh, ask him. I, I said, tell Harry. I know Harry very well. So I said, tell Harry, if he can't explain his PhD problem to a nine-year-old, then he's got a hard time coming. Ah, <laughs> I love it. Love well, Nini, I think yep. we're kind of out of time, aren't we? Yes, we are. Yes, we are. <laughs> I don't want it to stop, but thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Not at all. Thanks for having me. And oh. uh, I, I, I hope uh, I'll be interested in seeing what people think. Yes, uh, I will too. You know, if, I will if, if and when they watch this. Yes. And um, yes. let's see where it goes. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much. All, right. All my best. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed that conversation, please check out the links I've included in this show's notes. When paradigms shift, there are layers of adjustment required of all of us to relate in new ways to our world, to the ways in which we've always done things, to our relationships with others, and even with ourselves. The thing about paradigm shifts that we need to understand is that no matter how much we resist them, no matter how long we resist them, they're not really optional. Throughout history, waves of paradigm shifts have proven themselves to be manifestations of cumulative currents and rising tides powered by life itself. Change is hard for some people, but resistance to what is inevitable from what I've observed makes for an even rougher ride. I'd love to hear your thoughts, and so would Professor Mitra, so please shoot us an email or make a comment on the Big Picture Social Emotional Learning Podcast Facebook page. Thank you for being here, and thank you for all that you do for our kids and for the world that they're growing into. Thank you.